Psalm 115. Um, interesting interesting uh, story um, or way to think through this psalm. Um, this is a psalm about primarily about worship. So it's kind of funny that we have a worship song about worship. Think about that. We have a worship song about worship. That's what this is. And we're going to look at that tonight. I've titled it, What Matters Most to You. Um, we're going to see why that's a great title, I think, um, for what this looks at. But let me, tell, let me start out with a story. Um, when I was in your shoes, I literally mean when I was in college, um, I went to the University of Tennessee and was a biology uh, pre-med major. Um, at that time in my life, I, I had grown up in church, but uh, I was a party kid, and I don't think I knew the first thing really about who Jesus was. Um, but I want to tell you something that maybe was more important to me than anything that God, God had to do with my life at all, and that was uh, my studies. Um, I gave just about anything and everything to go be a doctor. Um, I studied my butt off. I made great grades. Um, and um, I played lacrosse at the University of Tennessee. And there came a time where I had to make a decision, do you want to study to go to medical school or do you want to play lacrosse? And so I gave up playing lacrosse so that I could try to go to medical school. Um, I can remember quitting jobs so that I could study. And I remember taking jobs so that they would make my resume look really, really good. Um, and they were great jobs. They were wonderful experiences. I can also remember um, that I uh, had basically spent loads of money for it too. Here's what I mean. If you've ever taken a prep course for you know, an MCAT or an LSAT, you know those things are not cheap. And back then, those things were running probably about $1,000 a course. And I looked at my mom and dad and said, can y'all give me some jingle for that? And they kind of said, no, you can go work for it. So then I had to, you know, you get the picture, right? Here's the point. I ordered my life around going to medical school. And by God's grace, I did not go. Um, it was hard. That's for another story. But the point I want you to see is, is that for about four years, I situated, I positioned, and I ordered my life. I, I will say this. I sold my soul, so to speak, so that I could go be a doctor. And guess what? I'm not an MD at all. Why do I share that story with you? Because I want to suggest to you tonight that every single one of our hearts is capable of that. And you go, capable of what? Studying hard? Trying to have a good job? Yes, but I think it goes deeper. I want to submit to you that what I did for four years was that I worshipped becoming a doctor. They weren't just strong ambitions and hard work ethic. It was actually what the Bible would call worship. It was my God. Do you see that? Now, we're going to look at that tonight because I believe that Psalm 115 is talking about the deep inner dynamics of your heart and of my heart. And it's basically getting at this idea of what real worship 
is. Three things I want us to kind of see tonight from Psalm 115. You can see them there in your, in your handout. I want to suggest to you that worship is about giving weight to something. I also want to suggest that everyone is going to, we're going to see worships something. And that lastly, that because we worship something, 99.9999 repeating uh, percent of the time, we're worshiping the wrong things. And so we have a worship disorder that needs to be fixed. And that's what we're going to look at lastly. So there you have it. Kind of the three main things I'd like for you to be able to take away tonight. Let's take a look there at that first one. Worship is about giving weight to something. Giving weight to something. What do I mean? Well, look with me at verse 1. Do you see that there? It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Interesting thing. I'm just going to stop right there. The psalmist, who's unnamed, is saying this to God. He's saying, O God, not to us, but to You give glory. Say that again. The psalmist is saying to God, God, not to us, You give glory. In other words, he's saying, I want You, O God, to give glory to Your name. There it is said another way. Well, it doesn't help us much unless you know what glory is. So it seems like let's pause for a second and kind of take a look at that. Here's what, I'm, here's what the Bible means when it uses the word glory. It comes from the Hebrew word. It's called kavod or kavod. And it literally means a heaviness, a weightiness, something that is very, very significant. And so what the psalmist is asking God to do is to make His own name weighty and mighty and to matter. Does that make sense? Kind of, you have done this before in your life. We'll take a look at that in just a second. But here's what else I think is very important to kind of point out. Two guys, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. One of them, uh, Pastor Tim Keller out of New York City. Another one, Don Carson out of Chicago area. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, Our word worship is from the Old English worth Skype, literally, worth shape. Worship is one, this is important, seeing and being affected by what God is worth, and then two, in response, giving Him all that is worth. Let me say it again. It's seeing God in all that He's worth, and then in light of seeing that, giving to Him out of all that He's worth. Worship responds with all that we are to all that God is. It is offering our whole selves, mind, emotions, and will in obedient service motivated by the beauty of who God is in Himself. D.A. Carson, Don Carson puts it this way. We do not meet to worship. That is, to experience worship. We aim to worship God. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. There is the heart of the matter. In this area, as in so many others, one must not confuse what is central with what is byproducts. Listen. If you seek peace, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you will, seek peace. You will find peace. If you seek joy, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you will find joy. If you seek holiness, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you will find holiness. If you seek experiences of worship, there it is, you will not get them. 
But if you worship the living God, you will experience something of what is reflected in the Psalms. I don't know what y'all think of when you think of the word worship. Some of you, if I were to say it, you would go, well, let me just do an experiment. What do you think of when I say worship? Think about that. Do you think of Sunday morning for an hour and a half? The stuff that used to bore you when you were a kid? Do you think of people on television um, who are raising their hands, you know, jumping around crazy or whatever? I don't know, you know, of the images for you. What about what you're supposed to feel like after you go to church or you go to RUF? None of those are what, what the Bible talks about when it's talking about worship. Now there are implications. Those are small pictures that may or may not happen, but primarily giving what worship is, is giving all of our being to what God is and in light of who He is. Let me say it like this. Don Carson uses this illustration. I don't know how many of you guys were grammar fiends. You loved grammar when you were growing up. It's probably about none of you. Yeah, that's right. Like weird faces. But Y'all remember the language of a transitive and intransitive verb? Lots of no's, okay? A transitive verb has a direct object. The boy hit the ball. Hit is the transitive verb. The action is transferred to somebody else. You know, Carter sat. Sat is an intransitive verb. There's no direct object to take the action, okay? I know it's boring. Listen, I want to suggest to you this, that most of y'all think that worship is an intransitive verb. That you think it's something that you're supposed to experience and that you think that it's something that you ought to feel and that you ought to just sort of happen to you. But nowhere in the Bible is it spoken of like that. Worship is always giving something to God. It's giving our hearts, our mind, our wills, our emotions, our dreams, our hopes to Him. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about worship. And we do that. Are y'all ready? We do that because we think something matters. That's sort of my first point there. Think about it like this. When my girls were born about a year ago, that was a heavy moment. You know what I mean by heavy? It was significant. It was the birth of my little girls. And in that moment, I just knew like, This is a holy moment. Have you ever had moments like that? I don't know what it would be for you. Maybe maybe there is a moment in your life that you can say, that was a holy moment. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon or Machu Picchu or something like that and you've seen God's creation. Or maybe you've lost a dear one and you've sat in the weight of a holy moment. That's what the heaviness is that God is talking about when He uses the word glory. And and it's meant to give glory, right? To the things that matter. Here's what I'm trying to say. That worship is about naming that something is valuable, worthy, that it is honorable. And if you want one last illustration, you go no further than Ammon G. Carter Stadium. And every Saturday depending if it's 11, 3, or 6 o'clock, about 50,000 people are worshiping. Now, I use that euphemistically, of course. But it's people saying what? 
This team matters, y'all. The frogs are the stuff. That's what it means to worship. And the psalmist is saying that that is what God... He is saying, this is what I want you to do, God. I want you to make your name great. There you have it. What does this mean for you and me? Well, I think a couple of practical implications. First of all this. I want you to know that when you hear the word worship, it is not primarily limited to what happens on Sunday morning. I want you to begin to have categories that worship is about what goes on all the time. That right now, you are giving weight to something. What is it? What is it in your life that you're giving weight, significance, and value to? What is that? Your something in your life matters supremely there. What is it? The psalmist is saying it, it must be and it ought to be God Himself. That's what true worship is. It's not about what you do on Sunday mornings, that's part of it, but it's about all of life, is what he's getting at. So begin thinking, as it were, in worship in those sort of categories and terms. Secondly, everybody's doing it. That's sort of the main thrust and point there. Let's look at this. Look at, um, look at verse 2. It says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? What, what is the psalmist saying? He's saying that the nations are looking on saying, Israel, where is your God? Don't you know that everybody else has these little things about this big or maybe that big and they're called idols and that's where God is? He's contained in a little chubby Buddha-like figure and that's what God looks like. But if you remember from the Ten Commandments, God had told Israel, don't do it. Do not make an image of Me. I don't have a form. You ought not ever do that. If you remember your Bible, you remember what happens. Moses comes down and what have they done? They've made a golden calf to say, this is a picture of what God looks like. And he's furious. He says, God says, I've had it. I've had it with you all. We're done. But God in His faithfulness continues on. But what they're saying is, is that look at us. We've got, look, you see it there right there. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. But notice, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Ears, but they do not see. These, these those idols, they have eyes, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. I love verse 8. Those who make them become like them. And, those who tr- and so do all those who trust in Him. What is the psalmist saying? Do you know what he's saying about those little idols? That they're completely useless. They have no power. They have no more power than them than this little jug of water does. And he's saying that when you and me worship idols, we're going to come back to that, we become like them. And that is absolutely useless. Isn't that crazy? Have you ever thought about that? Well, let me try to drive home this idea about everybody worships something. I want to suggest to you that at every turn somewhere in your life, like I said earlier, you are making something matter supremely to you. Let's get specific. What was it for me while I was in college? It was becoming a doctor. That was the thing that drove my life. That was the thing that mattered supremely to me. What is it for you? Is it Him? 
Is it that guy that you order your life around? That you say, if I could just have him, then my life would matter? Then my life would have significance? What, is it her, fellas? Boy, if I could just have her, if, if we could only you know, end up in a relationship together, if I could write the story, you know, write the fairy tale, and us get married and live happily ever after, maybe then my life would matter. Seniors, you don't have a job yet, and you think that your job is going to be your Savior. You think that if I can get that job, my life will have meaning. If you think I'm crazy, why are you staying up at night worrying about it? What is it? Is it the acceptance of other people? For me it is. I mean, y'all, you get mad at me and I'll do whatever I can to make you happy. That's the way I roll. I'm not proud of it, but that's what happens with my heart. I'm a people pleaser to the T. If you are, join the club. I don't know how y'all can't be, but I, you, know, you get the point. My point is, is this. All of those little things are things that we in our heart look to to make our lives matter, have weight to find value. It's worshiping it. That's what the Bible is talking about. And I just want to say to you that everyone worships something. If you are a non-Christian here tonight, let's say you're not a Christian, you say, it's not true. I'm not religious in the least bit. I'm here with my friend Joe, and I, I think you're crazy. I just go, okay, okay. Yes, you might not like raise your hands and when we sing, and that's cool, but you are indefinitely making something supreme in your life. You can't not do it. In other words, you must worship. Your heart at every point along the way in your life is always doing it. It's always doing it at every step of the way. What is it for you? I'll ask you this. You want to identify it? Ask this question. What, fill in the blank, if removed from my life would crush me? So you don't get that job. I didn't go to medical school. Guess what? I was crushed. <laughs> that told me very clearly that this, that this bad Jackson was an idol in my life. Okay? You see what I'm sort of getting at here? Look, what's funny is this. We went to Machu Picchu, obviously, a few, I guess it was last Wednesday, and our tour guide... Mauro, or whatever his name was, Mauro, I can't, I don't know. Um, a little short dude, um, and great tour guide. But here's the deal. He was telling us, you know, the people, the Incas, they were polytheists, they had a lot of different gods. And there was a story, listen to this, there was a story of him giving this man from the States a tour, and showing him the Condor Gate, which is this altar to their condor God. And while there, this guy sits alone by himself, takes a knife out, not while we were there, of course, but cuts himself and cuts his hair so blood drips down on this little altar. And he cuts his hair and he leaves his hair there as an act of worship. Because he's saying, if I can leave something here, my life will have meaning and value. Because of what you're telling me about this condor God.
Now you and me, we hear that, that's an idol. That's an idol. And you and me hear that and you go, that's silly, I would never do that. And I go, not so fast, my friends. If you think you would never do it, I would actually submit to you, every time that you want to have some girl ask you, you know, some guy ask you out, or you ask some girl out and it crushes you when it doesn't happen, it's like, welcome to the club, y'all. You're letting your blood drop and you're cutting your hair and you're worshiping the approval of somebody else. Isn't that crazy? See, we think in our culture, idols are these little short things. But it's not. It's everywhere. It could be anything. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But I want to begin to, I want to, begin to show you guys this. That any time that you find anything else besides God as that thing that gives you ultimate value and ultimate significance, it's called idolatry. But here's the thing. Does that mean that like sex and money and a job are bad things? The answer is no. Those are all created things that God has given us that are good. The challenge is this, is that we have taken a good thing and we make it what? The thing or the supreme thing or the ultimate thing. Does that make sense? It becomes the thing in your life. Him. He becomes the thing in your life. And I want to tell you this, when you do that, you are actually crushing that thing. It's not meant to be able to support the weight that you're putting on it. Think about it like this. If I were to give you a nail and a board, and you would say, can you hand me a hammer? And i say, I don't have a hammer. All I've got is a pillow. And you start banging on that nail to try to get it into that wood. Is it going to go in? No. Because why? The pillow was never intended to drive in nails. And usually what you're going to happen is you're going to tear up that pillow. You know that? Because you know what? That pillow was not meant to drive in nails. It can't support what it was meant to do, what you're wanting it to do. And I'm suggesting you this, that every time you take that good thing and try to make it be God in your life, you are exploiting it. You're destroying it. You are crushing it. Look, if you've got a girlfriend, she cannot be God for you. If you have a boyfriend, he cannot be God for you. Here's why. Do you think you can be God for him? No. If you think your job will be God for you, you will hate it. Do you know why? Because it won't drive in the nail. It won't deliver you. It won't deliver for you. Do you see how incredibly practical this is? It's insane what God is showing us in this text. That our hearts are absolutely bent on worship. That everybody's doing it. And the only way to fix it is by God and His grace. How does that happen? Well, here we go. Let's take a look at fixing these worship disorders. I want you to look there at verse... Um, let me take a look here. Sorry, where is it? Oh man, my page turned. That was why. Verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless those who fear Him, both the small and the great. Y'all, I actually just want to suggest to you this that the only way that you can begin to have your heart 
shaken out of your worship disorders is to see what God has done for you in the person and the work of Jesus. What do I mean? I mean that our hearts, I've used this illustration before, are like, uh, I about said ostriches, that's not the word I want. They're like octopuses. And they have these little tentacles, right? And they have this little thing before it and they go, and they suck onto it just like that and they hold on for dear life. You can insert your girlfriend there, your job, your money. Our little hearts cling to the created things that were never meant to be God. And what you can't get in there and pry those things off. Sheer willpower will not let you do it. Do you know what you need? You actually need a more compelling and more beautiful image to latch your heart onto. That's the only way that the tentacles will ever begin to go like this. It's when they see something is more beautiful to close on. The great Scottish Presbyterian minister Thomas Chalmers has a quote that's called the expulsive power of a new affection. What does that mean? It means that a new object comes in. And because it is more delightful and more beautiful in and of itself, that it literally expels the thing that the heart was clinging to formerly. I'll give you a great picture of this. Have you ever seen a three-year-old at Christmas? What do they do? They open up that toy number one and they love it, right? And how long do they love it for? About 39.6 seconds. And they're done with it. When what else happens? That new present comes out. The wrapping paper comes off. It comes out of the box. And what happens? It's like that's dropped and I'm here. And then what happens again? The third present comes and it's there. Because why? Because to the three-year-old, each one of those objects is increasingly more compelling and beautiful than the former one. And I want to suggest to you this, that the only way that you're ever going to get your heart's tentacles off of the things that that are killing you is if you'll begin to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's why. He is the only one like a lock and key that, is, that your heart is actually made for. If you're a chemist, you know about enzyme-substrate relationships. This is how it works. There is one-to-one. And I want to suggest to you this, that all of your spiritual problems and all the problems in your life are rooted in that. Some sort of worship disorder some sort of thing that you are trying to take and make be ultimate that is never meant to be ultimate in your life. And Jesus stands ready and He says, look at me, dear one. Look at me. And why though? Why would He be beautiful? Look at verse 12. The Lord remembered us. Every time your little heart's tentacles are grasping on to something else other than Him, do you know what? You have forgotten Him. You have forgotten Him and abandoned Him and given Him the finger and said, you're not enough for me. But this text says that while you are giving God the finger more or less, He is remembering you. 
Paul, the writer of Romans, says in Romans verse five, chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get that? That means you were never asked to be perfect before God would come to you and before He would die for you. That is absolutely the best thing that you're going to hear tonight. Because you need to see that while you could care, couldn't care less about God, He was remembering you. That is money, y'all. I need that. Do you? Because see, that is what's the beauty that is needed to begin to say, yes, oh Lord, yes. Thank God You did not ask me to clean up my act before You would come to me. Before You would have anything to do with me. Before You would love me. If You, O oh Lord, waited on me to love You, You would have never loved me. Because deep down in my heart, I don't care about You. I don't. That's what you're doing when you say, I love my boyfriend. I love my job. And when you say, I love my job supremely, guess what you're saying to God? I don't love you supremely. It's binary, do you see? Well, listen, I've ranted long enough. Um, I just want to say this. The psalmist is saying that the thing that ought to matter most to you I, this is cliche and trite, is God. Okay, yeah, that's why I've just spent 30 minutes trying to unpack that to not make it cliche. But the point is this, y'all, I dare you to begin to, I dare you to begin to examine your life and say, what is the thing that matters most to me? What is the thing that matters most to me? What is that? I want you to see the beauty of Jesus and how compelling He is and how He loves sinners. And I want your heart to be changed by that. I want that to matter, y'all, more than the affections of some boy or some girl. I want that to matter than your six-figure salary that you're probably not going to get when you get out of college. You see what I'm saying? I want this to matter. That's the thing that's going to bring you true joy and true happiness anyways. Let's pray.